This is the Business Storytelling Podcast with Christoph Trapp, available on Google, Spotify, Apple, Pandora, and other podcast channels. Want to play it on your iPhone? Just ask Siri to play the Christoph Trapp Business Storytelling Podcast, also available on Alexa. Here's Christoph with today's episode. business storytellers. How's it going? Christoph Trapp here, your host and author of Content Performance Culture. Thanks for joining us another live stream. Today we want to talk about how do we enable, uh, how do we move a company to become information enabled? So how do you make decisions with better information, basically? I think we'll ask our guest in a minute when we bring him on screen here. I want to mention a couple things really quickly. Super proud of something that came out over the weekend here. Uh, Feedspot actually listed this podcast is one of the best business storytelling podcasts, along with Park Howell's show and Donald Miller's show. Donald Miller, of course, we hear his name quite often out there as um, a, a leader in the storytelling world. So I was very pleased to see that happening. Park was, of course, on the show before um, talking about his latest book. So make sure you go back and listen to that. Just in time for Thanksgiving in the United States here, I do currently offer uh, a discount on the hourly rate for digital marketing strategy and implementation if you want to take a look at that. ChristophTrap.com. You can also just email me in the uh, the link in the show notes. So, um, but let's get the party started here. We want to talk about um, information enablement and the, the today's guest. I ran across him many years ago. That does not mean we're old. I know Mark Schaefer told me, don't talk about how long ago we met because that just shows how old we are. Um, but I don't know how many years ago it was Scott Abel uh, at Content Marketing World, of course, Content Marketing World, uh, 10th year this year. Uh, first time they did it um, virtually. So let's get Scott on the show here, see what's going on. And he's also referred to as the Content Wrangler. So we're going to get started with that first. Scott, how's it going today? Hi, welcome. Thanks for having me. The Content Wrangler. Tell us the story behind the name. Ah, uh, the story behind the name. So uh, I was a content consultant offering uh, content strategy uh, services. Um, and I was dating somebody who had a uh, kind of a fetish uh, with Western design, Southwestern in particular. So Southwestern decor, if you will. Everything was uh, uh, longhorn uh, cattle you know, horns and uh, cowboy stuff, if you will. And so uh, the word Wrangler just happened to fit. It seemed like what I was doing was helping people herd these uh, content creators and then wrangle all the content they created. And uh, the name just seemed to stuck, uh, seemed to stick. And uh, since then, I've just used it as my moniker and people uh, start to refer to me as the content wrangler. In fact, I've walked through airports before and had somebody at a conference that I was going to uh, attend in the same city in the same airport with me at the same time spot me and go, that's that wrangler dude. So, <laughs> that's, <laughs> apparently that's, it's stuck. It has stuck. That's awesome. So, of course, um, you know, we did connect a few years ago. I don't remember which content marketing world it was. It seems like 2014 maybe right around that yeah, time. that sounds about right. So, of course, now we're not traveling anywhere anymore, unfortunately, <laughs> um, even though I go back and forth between uh, never wanting to leave the house again and, um, you know, <laughs> I need to get out of here. So the reason I invited Scott on the, the show, guys, and, you know, on his Twitter profile, Scott Abel, uh, it's, it's listed here as well in, in the show notes, 
I exist to help organizations become information-enabled, to be capable of putting information, so content and data, basically, to work as needed on demand. Um, that's a lot of stuff packed into a Twitter, Twitter header there. Um, fill us in. What does that mean? What, what, what does informational enablement mean? And, and, yeah, what does that sentence mean? Well, that, that sentence is my attempt to try to distill what I think about content and, and how it should be uh, accessible to the business unit or the company that produces it uh, for whatever reason that they deem necessary. That's a business reason. And yet that's not really how we do things. Everything is siloed. Departments decide what they're going to do willy-nilly without regard for how it impacts other parts of the company. So I've been trying to look at a way to describe this uh, in a way that leaders would understand. Content people hear whatever it is they want to hear about content, right? It's part of their value. If you're a writer, then Part of your value is that I'm a good writer, I'm a good researcher, I can spell correctly, and I have grammar knowledge and linguistic knowledge and that kind of thing, which is all great. It's super important to have. But it doesn't help the content travel along a journey and end up where it needs to be. More often than not, it needs to be processed by a machine before it's delivered to a human. And so a lot of the focus that content people put on content is, I write for humans. And what I want them to understand is that you write for machines. That deliver content to humans. If you if you don't write for the machine, you're not taking advantage of the power that it has. You're not taking advantage of the capabilities that you could develop in your organization. So when I stumbled across the word information enablement, I was actually working with a group of consultants whose job it is to help company leaders determine how to shift their business model from whatever it is today to being able to grow exponentially. And in order to grow exponentially, these people who uh, preach this line of thinking, there are like 11 criteria that an organization has to have in order to be capable of of, um, growing at that clip. And one of them is they must be information enabled. And so I thought to myself, wow, that is what I'm teaching people to do. I'm just teaching one department at a time. You know, we hope an enterprise would want to treat their content in a respectful way and be able to unify how they work and produce content at scale. But that's not how companies work. Everybody has their own fiefdom. There's all these different tools. There's all all these different approaches, leaders and personalities that get in the way and culture. So information enablement to me just seemed like a way to speak to leaders, um, like why wouldn't you want to be able to put any information to work that you've paid to create or curate or uh, assemble together? That's the whole purpose of why you paid people to do it in the first place. Yeah, it's interesting why we still have these silos. And one thing that's also interesting, maybe we can dive into those two things a little little bit further here. Uh, I don't know, you might be the first person that comes on the show and says the opposite. Everybody always says, um, hey, we need to you, we need to write for humans, and I mean that is a little bit of a cliche, right? Everybody says, "Oh, we got to right. write for humans," and you have to. I get it, but if the humans can't find my content because you're not using the right terminology, I mean, in the case of right. SEO or or even podcasts, if you guys haven't listened to this show on podcast SEO, it's now a thing without transcribing your podcast. So right. you have to use the right terminology that people search for. Um, so, but why do you think so many people run around and say the other way, you know, it's like, oh, I'm writing for humans. The humans matter more than the machines, but it's all, everything goes together, right? 
I'm currently accepting requests for future virtual and on-site keynotes and workshops. In 2020 alone, I've spoken in Singapore and Istanbul, virtually of course, thanks COVID. I can't wait to get back on the road, and if we still can't get on the road in 2021, I would be happy to speak at your event virtually. Please reach out to me, ctraff at gmail.com or authenticstorytelling.net. This is a generational thing. It won't be a <laughs> thing at all. In 10 years, we won't hear anything except for old crotchety people who are retired bitching about this. Everybody else is not going to be on that program. The younger people already know they write for machines, but they realize the machines deliver content to people. So if you want to personalize content, and everybody says that they care about people, so if you care about people, then personalization makes sense, right? You're, you're delivering an individualized experience because you respect that person. In order to do that, you have to standardize everything that you do. You have to standardize it in a way that a machine can differentiate between this thing that's interesting to, to Scott and this thing that's not interesting to Scott. And in order to do that, you have to write it for a machine. And so we have to be cognizant that whatever we want the experience for the human to, to be, we have to prepare our content in a way that a machine can enable us to do that. And so information enablement is really about developing capabilities needed to do whatever it is that your business needs to do. So if you have to beat the competition by giving a better experience, you need to be able to personalize your content. If you need to be able to speak to people in different languages that you don't speak or communicate in uh, as naturally, you're going to need to be able to prepare your content for machine translation. If you're going to do both of those things, you're going to want to do them efficiently, which means you're going to want to be able to do them at scale. So you need a capability of being able to publish dynamically on the fly, you know, whenever you need to. And all of those things, I think, are things that people who are just wordsmiths become overwhelmed by. And I don't mean to stereotype all wordsmiths because certainly there are some writers that have that thing in their brain that says, yeah, I get that too. And they can do both. They can kind of segue <laughs> back and forth between being a content choreographer, for example. How does the information travel from your first interaction at the airport when you try to get into the airport facility and you need to pass through all these different places in order to get on an airplane? You, you know, that choreography of the data that travels with you has to go through first a kiosk or a person where you present a ticket or you scan something. You may have to um, insert a passport if you're going, uh, you know, out of the country, and that passport will be read by a scanner. You may have to use a fingerprint or eye uh, kind of sensing uh, technology to identify who you are. You may have to, if you're going through certain places, write a declaration and, and sign a piece of paper with a pen or a pencil. You have to present information to a person uh, verbally when you en encounter a customs official. And all of that stuff needs to choreograph. And all of that is not really a writer's job. It's a content choreographer or content engineer's job to figure out how all that's going to mesh together so that you can get on the plane effectively. And there's just so many examples of the life cycle of content and how it travels through uh, individual people's journeys with different companies that I feel like if we don't look at this as a discipline that needs some improvement, we're, we're going to be slow to uh, catch up with the people who are already doing it really well. Do you, and, do you, yeah. do you think that um, writers, wordsmiths, as you call them, can they learn all of this or is it um, like a totally different um, discipline? Your question is, can they? And the answer is some can. 
And uh, the, the question might be better asked is, uh, do they want to? And the answer is a lot of them don't. And uh, there also is a kind of um, need for people with specialized skill, right? Um, mm -hmm. If you don't want to be commoditized, you should have a niche. So if you're a writer and your expertise is writing about diabetes care for a medical devices company, for example, your knowledge of the diabetes and the medical device might lift you up enough and pre prevent you from being commoditized. But my, my thinking is companies are specifically looking for ways to get rid of writers. They do not, it is not, it's not an exaggeration to say that if they could get rid of you, they totally would. And, and the thinking goes something like this. We pay software developers and product developers to develop products. They went to university, they learned how to write, they can speak in English or whatever our native languages that we're producing content is. Why can't they, if they can write the code and they can write the product descriptions, why can't they just write the product error messages? Why can't they write the graphic user interface? Why can't they write the documentation? Um, nobody's saying that they should write the marketing, which is interesting. The marketing people have somehow kept themselves over on the, on the sidelines and not been replaced. But think about the enormous gains you could get if you could have somebody who writes code also write the documentation and write the, you know, the, the ancillary materials that go along with it. But that's not happening. And so I think in order to figure out what writers would be good at, it has to do with their natural inclination. What are they interested in? What are they willing to do? If you're not willing to new, learn new things, you're not participating in this part of the growth, right? Because it's all about what you know. It's not about who you know. Who you know will not help you communicate with multiple machines across multiple networks in different countries with different regulations, with different technology. It's just too complicated of a, a matrix for um, people to do manually and their existing knowledge is insufficient to help them compete. Do you need help with digital marketing for your small to medium sized business? Reach out now and drop us a message at ctrap at gmail.com. Basically, I mean, when you were talking about all these silos, I mean, there's plenty of silos, even, I mean, small companies, big companies, doesn't make any difference, honestly, what size it is. Um, why is there so many silos? Why is that still a thing? How can we not get past them? <laughs> I don't, I, I used to ask the question the way that you just asked it, and now okay. I know better. Um, I used to believe that um, the silos were a problem that could be circumvented by breaking them down. Mm -hmm. And I believed that because I was the uh, I was privileged to work with Ann Rockley, who some people call the mother of content strategy. She wrote a book in uh, between 1999 and 2001 when it was first published in its first edition called uh, Managing Enterprise Content, a Unified Content Strategy in which she says that content silos are the problem and that we need to break them down in order for everybody to unify. What we've learned since then is that tackling the problem at the enterprise level at first is way too big and too challenging for most organizations for a myriad reasons from you know, the way they're organized, their culture, the way people think, um, the way human beings behave. You know, Some human beings will um, not participate in the way that you would like them to. They kind of drag a project down because they're fearful of the change. So today we believe that maybe somehow bringing all these silos together is a different way to solve the same problem. How do we connect to the efforts of all these different people who are working in slightly different ways with a common way of bringing it all together 
and making sense of it. That that would mean that the marketing team might be able to continue using an authoring tool that they're con they're um, already content using and they understand how to use with some minor tweaks we can make their content cooperate with content created by another team that uses totally different authoring tools but we have to standardize some of the stuff in the middle so now i think there's kind of a middle ground where we could connect things together and you see this with apis right Let, let's not reinvent the wheel let's just connect to what somebody else is already doing and then process that information and let it move on through so the more that we can connect to the silos i think we can find a way to make them communicate to each other without having to break them down totally. In other words, it's easier to sell the idea that everybody that is working will work in a similar way than they are today with some moderate changes than it is to say everyone is going to stop doing it how they do it today and we're all going to do it this way. Everyone's going to use the same tool. Everybody's going to follow the same rules, which would be better, by the way, but that's not how humans work. So getting those silos broken down is usually not effective way to to approach the problem if you're trying to grow rapidly and, and and do things at scale interesting sometimes it matters how we ask the question um how about the the second part of um your mission statement or whatever you call it there on the on the twitter header uh you know once you have the data how do you how does that look how do you help people make decisions with it well it's not necessarily my job to do that actually my i'm more of an instigator <laughs> for change. Uh, I, I'm often brought in to help make the business case for why companies need to, to make that kind of change. Um, and also, I'm also known as somebody who will tell you how it is. Like there, there are many, many companies that have employees who uh, learn about something new that they want to do, but their company's not capable of doing it. They're not mature enough. They don't have the discipline or the governance or whatever is required. And so often it's my job to tell people that you, you really shouldn't do that. What you, what you maybe want to do is try something smaller um, and try to work through these problems with proof of concepts and, and pilots before you tackle a much bigger problem. The, the information enablement word is interesting as well, because it's, if you were to keyword search for it, and believe me, I have, um, in every potential kind of repository of information that I can get my hands on uh, or my keyboard on, uh, you'll also find that the Exponential Growth Business Consulting com Community, which is a, a group of uh, people who are trying to convince leaders to uh, change the way that they grow their companies so that they can grow uh, at an exponential clip, they think of information enablement differently. They think of information enablement in an interesting way. It's actually something that's happening right now. It's not something that we're theoretically talking about. It's, it's a real thing. Some companies are taking, they're moving from producing products that are made up of atoms so they're physical tangible goods and they're actually creating a digital product from them that is comprised of bits and bytes so computer information so a great example would be an airline manufacturer they actually make and sell traditionally airplanes and and other related you know uh, equipment and that was the, their bread and butter Today, a company like Boeing could attach sensors to all their airplanes and all the other engines and, and, and products they make, and then they could connect that to the Internet of Things and collect data from all of those things that they made and sold to people, and they could sell that information in the aggregate 
and, and visualize it and do stuff to the information or the data that they've been collecting, and they could sell that as a service to the same customers. So they're basically getting a two for one. They're selling a physical product, and then by connecting through sensors and the Internet of Things, they're able to collect data and then sell the data as a product, which makes them information enabled. So they're enabled to make revenue from information collected from the products that they manufacture and they're also selling the products that they manufacture. So they have two sources of revenue coming in. Mm -hmm. Boeing would be a good example of that. And, and there are probably dozens of other companies that are starting to do that now. And then, of course, hopefully companies will make decisions based on the data that they get. And uh, hopefully they can analyze it. Correct. And that's why you see this kind of rise of the data scientist and people that are whose jobs it is to interpret the data and make business decisions that actionable um, decisions from that data and by using internet technology and sensors and allowing sensors to collect all the data and bring it all together in one place then you know you don't have humans in the way of that the the sensors are passing it through it's being parsed by server and it goes follows some rules the algorithm does something to it and then it's visualized for humans or or prepared for other machines as the case may be and is passed on as another value add so you're actually making money or the potential for making money and creating value from your core competency, but it's actually a data product that you're selling from it, which is a different way of looking at it. Either way, I think they're both important and they're both part of enabling a company to use information to their fullest. And I want to get back, Scott, to the instigator comment in a second. I got a question for you about that and maybe a little story. But as sure. you were talking about um, you know, how you think about silos, what came to my mind, it took me a minute here to pull up. Uh, this is actually from um, a, a blog post. Simple, an episode, a. Simple A. Are you familiar with him? Cruz Saunders. Yes, I am. Yep. So Cruz was on the show, uh, I don't know, a few weeks ago. And then we did an article about the topic. And what he said to me, he goes, instead of, you know, trying to do everything, fix everything in a process, pick a little piece of the process <laughs> and do that first. Um, and try to show some results and pick one where people have the highest return. And when you just talk, that kind of reminded me of what you just talked about. So it, it's proof. It's proof that, that you can't sell that because that's what consultants problem is, is that, of course, we should all do it the same way. It makes logical common sense. Your grandmother would have taught you these things like, you know, if you're doing it over here this way, why don't you just do it over here this way? It makes perfect sense. But that's not how business operates. That's not how you get uh, business funded. And by the way, if you try to sell those projects across an entire company it doesn't work very often there aren't very many leaders that are um, savvy enough to be able to navigate the waters that they would have to in order to make that happen and there also are not leaders that are compelled to do it so the, the, the companies that are trying to grow exponentially they're driven by fear they don't give a shit about content this doesn't have anything to do with it everything that we say is blah 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 now say something useful. Right? <laughs> so come at it from a business angle and let's say that you're Procter & Gamble. You are a manufacturer of all kinds of cosmetic products and home goods. So you make toothpaste and other things and you're fearful because you see the data that Amazon, who is a key marketer in sales of your current product, could easily duplicate your toothpaste and just make it themselves. They know exactly who buys what toothpaste. They know how much they're willing to pay for it. They know what whether they want delivery or not. They know all these things. They could kill you in a hot minute. 
there are leaders of big companies that totally know that there's somebody that's willing to use innovation to disrupt their current market and they don't want to be the leader that went down with the ship. So they are motivated to avoid being replaced by an innovative disruptor. So what they do is say, teach me how to avoid to do that. When you're driven that way, you can get a leader who agrees, okay, we need to make all these changes. You know, that's not going to be easy. I'm not going to be able to do it in 30 days. So (laughs) people like Bruce and I have to come along and say, then just pick a part and let's start there and work our way through. Sometimes it's because you need to prove the business case to a leader, but somebody who's afraid their whole company is going to go under from an innovative disruptor is not waiting for you to prove something to them. They already know. That's why they paid to learn all this stuff about growing exponentially. I think that where Cruz's graphic fits is the average sale that you try to make as a consultant to help a company do their content better involves some people who have a limited budget and some limited time, and they're trying to decide how to use those resources in a wise way. And if you come at them and say, you need to fix all these things are wrong, they're going to be overwhelmed by it, and they just don't go anywhere. And those projects usually fumble, even if they get funded, by the way. I could be provided with a check and be perfectly happy as a consultant, but never yield a deliverable product that was successful or project because a new leader will come in. You know, So you get funded by one person. That person gets you know relocated to a different part of the company or gets a new job, and a new leader comes in. Now, all of a sudden, that's not a priority anymore and your project is wasted. And so what happens is there have been a lot of wasted efforts trying to unify silos of content creators that didn't provide any value. So the negative of those failures is traveling around and creating some fear and some challenges for people who are trying to get companies to make those big changes. Yeah, point very well taken. Um, I will say this in addition though, I have seen some projects where it has made sense to um, break down silos and put them together. And typically they were when you had similar roles on different teams and they were doing very similar things, right? So why do you have yeah. three writers over here and four writers over here? Why are they not one team? Why are they not working together? In case you guys are wondering, and then I'm going to ask Scott about being the instigator, uh, which I know <laughs> he is, the content wrangler himself. Um, if you're wondering how I do these graphics, how I bring up the graphic from... Um, Simple A, there is a podcast, um, of course, with Cruz and a live stream that you can go back to. But I use Switcher Studio, right? So I can I can zoom in, not zoom in, that might be the wrong term, but I can just project in my monitor screen and I'm we're live streaming from my iPad. So the entire production happens on my iPad. And wow. the one thing, it's unbelievable, right? How easy it has gotten to produce these things. And then we use Restream to ship the, pod, the, the, the show to all these different channels, Twitch, Periscope, Twitter, all the ones I mentioned earlier. Um, I was going to ask you something. Now I forgot it. I'll remember it later. So let's talk about instigators. Um, so when you talk about I'm the instigator, like why yeah. do we need instigators? I mean, certainly things are changing. We need to stay ahead of things. And I'm not sure that's even possible. But But why do companies need somebody to come in and say, hey, Look at this, look at that, yeah. uh, you know, time to change. I, I think it's a third-party voice of uh, authenticity that they're searching for. I'm most often brought in because somebody will have heard me speak at a conference or in some other uh, format, and they represent a big company, but they're just one employee. Then they go back to their company and they say, I went to this conference, I heard this great thing about information enablement or whatever it is that you, you learned, and I think we should do it. 
and then their boss says, okay, tell me more about it. And now that person has become the messenger. So they were a conference attendee or an audience member, and now we're expecting them to be a sales representative for our idea. So what happens is usually they try to do that, and then they're not very good at it because they're not experts in the area. So they usually ask for help. And uh, I have found that when I am brought in, I'm asked to pitch in front of a group of people why they should change the way they're doing things today. So I'm not trying to sell them on an idea, and they can't, I, I can't, I'm not getting a quote at the end of the meeting. My objective is to help their leadership team understand where they are today in comparison to other companies and to show how other folks are doing things differently so that they can consider whether their companies might also benefit from a, a similar approach. Often, if I'm successful at that, I'm asked to stay on and help guide the project, but it's really a sense of familiarity amongst the people who were in the team that I stay on the team. I don't, I'm not required because usually what they need is practitioners to come in and do a content audit, somebody else to um, figure out what the customer journey really is, not the one they imagine their customers have. You know, the practitioners that specialize in taxonomy or personalization. And when you put them all together, you get a great team of people who can tackle a big project. So I'm normally the instigator and the cheerleader, if you will. Once the project starts going, um, they sometimes ask me to come in and say, look, you convinced all of our writers we should do this. And they weren't afraid of you. They liked you. But now this new person's coming in and they're saying, you can't do that this way anymore. Now you need to do it that way. And they're like, where's Scott? He made it sound much more uh, friendly. <laughs> if we have right. Scott come in again. So often I brought in just to kind of lead the way and say, this is what's going to happen next. You're going to be asked to author in a different way with a different authoring tool. Don't be afraid. Here are the things that are probably going to happen that you're going to not like. Here are the things that are you're going to love. And once you see the, the benefit of the things that are good for you, you are going to be like me and you're going to say, wow, this was a little painful, but now that I made the change, I don't want to go back to the old way of doing it. I kind of want to do it the new way. I mean, think about it, the fact if I just said, no more iPad and I'd take them all back. People would freak out. But when I first gave people iPad, they were like, oh, I can never type with this. I'm going to need a keyboard. I'm like, no, you're not. You're just going to learn how to type on the iPad. <laughs> and, and now we have, mm -hmm. right? You, you can have a keyboard. It's an option. But many people, did, the iPad did not die because people had to change the way that they typed. Uh, you know what I mean? And technology is changing at such a rapid clip. I think the instigator role is more about helping people see where they fit and how they can use tools to augment what they already are good at. How can they increase their value to the companies that they serve and not be fearful that the technology itself will replace them? And that was actually the other thing I was going to talk to you about or ask you about is the companies that just keep replacing um, basically their own products, if you think about it, right? So here's yeah. my, my setup. I don't have another camera to show you, but I have a stand-up desk, right? I'm standing yeah. in my office. I got a big monitor. I got a little laptop. I got the uh, key yeah. keyboard for my iPad, which, of course, we're currently recording on. And right. then I also have the Apple Watch. And I don't really, when I'm not traveling, Scott, I don't even use my um, iPhone at all. Right. Like what you said earlier, you said, let me uh, put my iPhone on mute. My iPhone is somewhere upstairs. I don't even know where it is. So, But I still have one, right? Um, but my point is... Apple continuously comes up with things that, in theory, could kill a previous um, oh, uh, yeah. product, right? I mean, I even if I think about the Apple Watch, my six-year-old, yeah. 
we're discussing, hey, if she needs to get a phone, uh, maybe she doesn't need a phone. Maybe we get her an Apple Watch so she can text us, right? And she can we can see where she is. But does she really need a, a phone? No. And if you think ahead a few years, teaching somebody typing skills is not necessarily going to be increasingly valuable because uh, no one's investing in keyboard companies. They are investing in audio. They're investing in voice, conversation. So I'm getting ready to something in 2021, hopefully. It was supposed to be on deck for 2020, but we all know what happened to that train wreck of a year that we're living through. Mm -hmm. uh, but I was going to do something called A Day Without a Keyboard. And my idea was to uh, kind of illustrate the need for us to learn how to use voice technology. I wasn't doing it for a business reason. I was really doing it because I wanted to point out that if you learn to do this, you will immediately see why you're alienating all these people with visual impairments. Because these electronic devices that talk, if we prepare the content in such a way to serve the needs of everybody who can um, see and can type, we, by incident, right, incidentally, we help people with accessibility. And so I wanted to do that. And I went to the National Association of the Blind or whatever the trade organization is that represents um, uh, uh, hearing uh, visually impaired Americans. And they told me that that would be a lofty goal for a day without a keyboard and said, maybe you should try a half hour without a keyboard. So my idea was to have this kind of event that everyone in my universe would take a half an hour and not use their keyboard learn how to use the verbal controls that are available on most computers today and try to open your email that way. Try to send an email that way. Try to write a couple paragraphs of a document. Try to you know do some regular business tasks. And I think that's kind of my instigator role again, right? I'm trying to point out that um, it helps people inadvertently, but it's actually a business decision. And, the, and your point is these things are getting replaced so quickly that you know that there's a plan for no more keyboards. There's, there's totally a plan for that. Apple's whole movement to bring iOS onto the desktop so that all the apps work as they do on the phones and the iPad tell mm -hmm. you that there won't be a need for the screen. There'll be a screen so you can touch it, but there won't be a need for keyboard as a third-party device. If you, know, you may prefer one and you may still be able to get one, but I, I don't think that's <laughs> their plan. So I actually, uh, so I did speak at Content Marketing World, the virtual version this year, about uh, voice search. Uh, you guys can listen to the audio on the podcast here, AuthenticStorytelling.net forward slash podcast, or head over to ContentMarketingWorld.com, and you can, uh, you, I think you can still view it for another um, few months here. Uh, Trap One Hundred gets you a hundred bucks off, I think. Um, so, but my my point on that whole thing is, I actually did that before. I covered the Adobe Summit. And I only took my uh, my iPhone. I did everything on my iPhone. I did video. I did. Yeah. I wrote on my phone. Sometimes I voice dictated, um, and it's interesting. Like it's you know it it takes some getting used to. But once you get into it, I mean, I would love it. I would you know you just stand here, you talk. Uh, yeah. It gets transcribed. I mean, it you can do it. It's just it takes a little bit of work. And there there are schools that are teaching people. I, I just recently relocated from San Francisco where I was privy to live down the street from a school that was immersive in technology. And they were they were, they saw what was happening and they said, look, we, should, we can't be teaching kids what we learned 30 years ago because we learned it from somebody who was a teacher of teachers. And now we're teachers, so we should teach that old stuff. We have to go learn the new stuff and force ourselves to learn it, to teach the, the kids what they're going to need to know uh, for the world that they exist in. You know, in my 
past, I've done a lot of presentations. I probably did this at Content Marketing World even, where I blame Mrs. White, my fifth grade uh, grammar teacher, for all of our content woes. Mrs. White, of course, is not really to blame, but I use her as an example because in 1976 or so, when uh, I would have been in fifth grade or approximately that grade, um, she was my grammar teacher. At the time, they called the class Language Arts. So she taught us language arts, not language science. She taught us things for a world that she believed we would live in. What At the time, the television show that was number one during my fifth grade grammar class was Star Trek, the original series on television, which featured a woman who was a navigation officer or communication officer who had a thing in her ear that she could touch and talk to people far away. That's Bluetooth now, right? But before it was fiction. They also had a little flip thing that they would flip open that was like a Nokia cell phone that they would talk and type into which was like their uh, cell phone, which was also fiction during the show. And they had an iPad-like thing that the doctor used when he wanted to diagnose people, and he would interact with it with his fingers, which was a touchscreen. So all those things that she thought were fiction came to life mm-hmm. after I graduated, you know, 15 years later, I'm in college, and there all these things are real. So the rules that she taught us were for a world that she envisioned we would live in that did not include those things. And so now that we've got all these people who have been trained in that way and the world changed, then that new generation is not going to be taught those rules. And I think we're going to see a different kind of leapfrogging where uh, younger people will jump over some of the existing technology we have and invent new ways of doing things that we wouldn't have even thought about. Just like Mrs. White had no way to know that those things would be real. Things continue to evolve. And, you know, 10 years ago or 15 years ago, maybe even five years ago, I would have said that's crazy that we're standing here (laughs) and we're doing a live podcast, you know, to five channels from an iPad. um, And then that podcast, the audio version goes to 20 more channels. I would have said that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. Um, But, yeah, things continue to evolve. Scott, of course, you can connect with him on Twitter. The, The link is in the show notes as well if you're listening on the podcast channels. TheContentWrangler.com is his website, and you can find him everywhere uh, everywhere else. Scott, I really appreciate you sharing your insights, and it was great to reconnect with you. It was nice to reconnect with you, too. Thanks for inviting me in this uh, switcher or studio setup that you have going here. It's super cool. I hope other people learn how to do it. I'm definitely going to check it out myself. I may have to come back to you for some guidance on how I might use it in my business. Please do. Always happy to help. Always happy to connect and help people create better content. Thanks, everyone, for watching and listening. Until next time.